hey y'all we definitely understand that this has been one hell of a week in this country and i don't want to seem like we're not sort of aware of what's going on in the world and that we don't want you to learn about that stuff there are several just fantastic resources out there for you to be informed on the subject if you have not checked out the right time podcast with bomani jones now would be an excellent time to start and if you want just good factual you know information about these protests especially in lincoln nick can i plug your twitter feel free uh my podcast co-host has been doing excellent objective journalism about these protests on his Twitter account for the Lincoln Journal Star. Both want you to be informed, but we're going to continue to do our normal show. Take some time to enjoy some very unserious information from us. Yes, so. I have just a couple of quick things I want to say. Okay. I think Justin touched on the fact that I'm a reporter um, and my beat for the last week in, in our city has been covering these protests. And so that's part of the reason I don't feel comfortable on a show like this discussing them is because I'm having to work with these people in an objective sense every single day. So it's important to me for my work to remain neutral. Uh, and then secondly, we are two white dudes. I'm going to speak for myself here, but I think... Justin would probably agree that there is so much more that I don't know than what I do know at this point about this. Uh, and, and frankly, our voices, especially on this, are not the kind of thing we feel like need to be amplified right now. What I'm saying is if you're frustrated that we're not addressing this head on, and we're trying to put in a little disclaimer about this at the beginning, but don't at Justin feel free to add me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Appreciate it. Yeah, no, I thought I'd clear up your Twitter inbox there. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> I, I log in like twice a week to promote something, but thank you. <laughs> Yo, man, I, I checked your followers yesterday. I'm beating you by like 650 now. Like... <laughs> It's bad. <laughs> it is, but I don't care. I don't put effort into this. The Devil Bird app eats my soul every single day. <laughs> the Devil Bird app. It's what it is, Justin. There's an evil little bird. And he says, don't you want to look at the tweets? Don't you want to look at the tweets, Nick? And I'm like, uh, I want to look at the tweets. I shouldn't, but I do. It's, but it's not like... All the other places are that much better, you know? It's all, like, at this point, it's a solid 50% of my job, so. Yeah. <laughs> I can't outrun it. All right. Let's get to the old uh, podcast proper here. What's first on the docket? Speaking of dockets, documentaries are all the rage now with out any live sports to fill the oh, void yeah, there's a whole pandemic going on yeah that that's a thing i forgot mm -hmm. it's a good thing too because my job literally requires me to go walk amongst crowds 
so glad I conveniently forgot that latent death abounds. <laughs> yeah. Death is in the air. After a day of, of grazing against the shoulder of the Grim Reaper. Uh We've been watching. Uh, we've been watching two two documentary series yes. on the ESPN, which has graciously moved them up from midsummer in order to fill her content void. <laughs> which is like h- hilarious that they were like so prepped for the no sports content void that they were able to fill the coronavirus content no sports void, like. <laughs> I just love the fact that ESPN is so prepared for, like, nothing on except, like, one decent baseball game a week that, like, they can fill a pandemic, too. Yes, they've honestly been doing better than I expected them to with pandemic programming. But recently, it's been so dry. They're airing, like, 10 hours a day of NBA 2K League, you know? So, yeah. I watched, what did I watch the other day? They are televising, like, F1 esports events, so that's cool. But the other day, I watched the best sports center commercials. Like, <laughs> like eight-hour countdown. Yeah. Like, I've, I've no, seen that. Like, different top tens, too. Like, they oh. did the total top 50, and they, they were, like, top it. 10, top 10 uses of mascots, and, like, it, it was terrible. I want that my life back. I tell you what, there hasn't been that many good This Is Sports Center commercials in the past couple of years. I don't know if it's because I've been watching ESPN programming less as my life's gotten more busy and I haven't just seen them. Or, or I'm right and they're just not as good as they used to be. I think some of both is probably true. Like, what was the last like good one you remember? Was it Brooks Kepka making a sandwich? Like, I think that might be it. I feel like Bubba Watson deciding whether or not to go over the cubicle or around the cubicle. <laughs> that was a good one. <laughs> that was classic. That was, like, fresh off his master's win. So that was, like, what, 2012? Well, that was the whole joke, over the tree or around. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. The one where Wally, the Red Sox mascot, catches David Ortiz. David Ortiz wearing Yankees. That one's funny. <laughs> that was classic. Hi, Miss Baseball. Yeah. Especially like those people in baseball. Like the like the, the happy like like it doesn't feel summer feel like summertime. No. It, it's this is the first week of June and it just Oh Okay, I'm I'm just Googling new this is sports in our commercials and I've seen like two so far that have been like uploaded in the past eight months. Okay, so from what I can see there's like five commercials that have been uploaded in the past like year and a half. Of fresh new this is sports centers. Two of which I recognize from seeing on air. So you know what really makes it not feel like summer to me? There's no international soccer. What wait, when were Euros supposed to begin? Like 
June. Oh. Which is now. It, yeah, but then it doesn't feel like June. Yeah, if this year's been any indication, June is either going to last two days or 17 weeks. So. Oh, yeah. June is going to feel like a whole summer. <laughs> yep. I feel like a totally stagnant news cycle mixed with absolutely no entertainment that is new is going to make June feel eternal. Yes, because all throughout April, the month that sort of got up and out of here, there was the last dance on every Sunday, two parts, and that almost felt like sports again to me. Where Right, it was a huge collective experience in a different and interesting way, but it was still something that was happening together. Yes, and then the day after, all of the talk shows were talking about the episodes. Like, I had never seen anything like that before, where, where they could squeeze a week's worth of content out of two documentary episodes and hype for the next two. This was basically just ESPN since it was their product. But the fact that they could do that, it felt like they're, that was sports again. So that's why since that has ended, it's made the road back to sports seemed longer than it ever has. Yeah. Well, and so I didn't start watching The Last Dance right away. Mm-hmm. Because you people know me. I'm, like, <laughs> basketball skeptical. And, like, definitely not a big fan of, like, I think this particular aspect of the NBA. Like... The glitz and the glam and the hero worship, it gets a little old. Um, And I think part of the thing about Jordan for our generation is that we grew up right after him. Yes. So everything we ever learned about basketball was in the context of Michael Jordan. You know, I mean, so we start paying attention. I don't know when you started paying attention to the NBA. I started, like, understanding what the teams were and occasionally watching games in about, like, the fourth grade, right? Yeah. For me, I think I, I knew who the teams were and, like, who the players were in, like, kindergarten, first grade. And then I think the first NBA finals I remember watching were Cavs-Spurs, I believe, in 2007. Whoa, really? Mm-hmm. Damn, you were young blood back then. <laughs> yes. I was like, I would have been seven, I think. Yeah. And it was... Goddamn. Mm-hmm. I, I remember that Cavs team that had... I wanted them to win because they had LeBron. They had Zadrinus Ilgalskis. But the Spurs played beautiful basketball. Oh, my God. <laughs> When the Heat lost to them in 2014, like, I was obviously upset, but I had never, like, respected somebody who beat me more. Right. (laughs) Yeah, I I feel like they always get compared to Barcelona. And yet, like, I've always thought the more apt comparison was Bayern. I'd say play style, you could definitely make that argument. But just culture, I, I... 
don't yes. see it there. No. I, it, the, the San Antonio Spurs were the answer to the question, what if Pep Guardiola coached a basketball team? And the whole, like, so the, re- the other thing that makes them very Barcelona-esque is, like, the pass and move thing. But I almost think that, like, the way basketball works requires you to be a little bit more, like, methodical. Mm-hmm. And it's not like there wasn't, like, moments of creativity that broke through. But pretty much, like, they had a pretty clear game plan. They were going to do it every time, and you were just not going to be able to stop it. Nothing in the world says that to me like Bayern Munich does. <laughs> <laughs> like, look at that. Um, look at that. Their Classicer we just watched. Yeah. They shut up. They did the Bayern thing. They left with three points. And to me, like, the Spurs show up. They do the Spurs thing. They leave with a dub. Yeah, the, the Spurs, they're just the most unlikely most unassuming dynasty I have ever seen in professional sports. Like, especially the NBA, which, as you mentioned, has so much glitz and glamour and is all about, like, these big stars forming their iron-set legacies. Like, after, after Michael Jordan retired, who was going to be that next player to have the Jordan ethos? And for, for a lot of people in that 2000s, it was... Kobe Bryant, who had that sort of killer competitive mentality, people sort of gloss over the fact that Tim Duncan won just as many championships as Kobe Bryant did in that time frame. Right. But, and he had one more MVP and, and more finals MVPs, but, but because, you know, <sighs> he's sort of anti everything that made Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan those types of defining stars because they were like the exciting brand of basketball, the clutch shots. And Tim Duncan was, I am going to (laughs) turn my back to the basket, turn around from the top of the key, chuck a shot off the glass and jog on defense. (laughs) And it worked. And this, and he played in a small market city with the head, like traditionally, Especially like a filler franchise in the NBA who who just not happened to come best. along from the ABA. Not really. You had David Robinson, who like legend that he is, you know, but he was nothing more than just another one in the lo- of the long list of good players in a small market town. Like if Robinson left and Duncan didn't come, I'm not so sure the Spurs still exist in San Antonio. But oh, for sure. They move. But just the way they built that team of here's the most quiet superstar in NBA history and a bunch of international players. Like, you got to be really good to be a balding, big-nosed dude named Mono Ginobili and still have everybody know your name and be able to pronounce it. Yes. You have got to be a good basketball player for that (laughs) And just the fact that their first championship together of Duncan and Popovich was 1999. Their last was in 2014. I cannot think of a single other team besides the Patriots, maybe, who has that type of longevity with that core. 
I mean, certain, and it pains me to say it, but like certain Yankees dynasties, maybe. Maybe, but when Jeter and them's the core four's first title was like what 90, 97, 96? Oh, I wasn't thinking recently. I was oh. thinking like Murderer's Row. Okay. Like, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm sort of hesitant to like compare that era to this era because, you know, there were less teams. The pool of players was quite literally <laughs> excluding a lot of the top talent at the time. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, that's true. The Celtics won 11 titles in 12 years, and I don't really care since there were like eight teams in the league. <laughs> right. The hockey teams that like went off when there were eight teams, like, all right, whatever. There's eight of you. Where, where did we meet off? We watched The Last Dance. You watched it as it was happening, but I watched it like I haven't quite finished it. Justin has the full right to shame me. I think I got through the episode where Dennis Rodman is lost in Vegas. That's like episode three. No, no, it's not. Wait, wait, is this the one where he... Is it like, is this, does this happen during the finals or during the regular season? I think we're like right at the tail end of the regular season. Okay, so like episodes one and two are sort of the setup. Three is Rodman. Four is Phil Jackson. Five. I got through the Phil Jackson one. Okay. Five is the dream team in the Olympics. Six is Jordan gambling. Seven. I got like halfway through five. Okay. What happens in seven? I didn't know Jordan was a gambler. Oh, whoa. He's a, he's a big gambler. Why don't you just run me through what happens in the rest of the doc? <laughs> no, you have to watch six. Six is so good. Um, no, I need just just tell me. <laughs> Give me the information. Ah. Ah. Wikipedia, I forget how to, to summarize episodes seven, eight, nine, and ten. Um, episode Episode seven is Jordan in baseball. Oh, that sounds boring. It's it's one of the best ones. Is it really? Yes. Didn't they make a 30 for 30 about this? Mm-hmm. So this is sort of like the best parts of that 30 for 30 sandwich in between, like, you know, why he did it because his father died and how the Bulls are doing without him. And then episode eight is Michael's comeback and subsequent loss in the playoffs to the Magic, which is super interesting. Wait, he came back to the Bulls? Yes. He won three championships, played baseball, and then came back and won another three championships. Wait, the baseball happened In before. between. The, the baseball happened before the 98 season that's being chronicled here. Wow. Mm-hmm. Holy crap. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> I don't even know, man. Like, that's just such a wild fact that 
every sports fan has just sort of accepted is that in the prime of his career, after winning three in a row, he quit to play baseball for a year and a half. Because what the hell? Why not? I know. And the thing is, he wasn't like, he wasn't by any means a world beater at baseball. But for somebody mm-hmm. who, but for somebody who had not played since they were seventeen, going to double A and hitting two twelve is incredible. I just like. Here's the thing that I think pulled me out of the documentary so many times. Mm-hmm. Michael Jordan is such a freak of nature that it can be really hard, I think, even in the story he's telling about himself to make himself seem somewhat like a fuller person, even then he feels two-dimensional. Like, do you remember that song, All I Do Is Win, that was around when we were kids? I quite enjoyed it. Michael yes. Jordan is if that song became a person. <laughs> and that's it. There is nothing else here. Like, I didn't know he gambled, but of course he does. Because he just has this undying need to crush souls. And, like, he makes it pretty clear it is not enough for him to win. He wants you to be demoralized. And, like, I don't know what this says about me, but I'm not that kind of person. I'm, I'm not a soul crusher. Like, I want to win. I work hard. But I'm not the kind of person who feels like I need to just, like, devour the souls of my enemies to feel like a successful human being. Not like I'm a pushover. Not like I don't want to get stuff done. But, like, I just couldn't wrap my head around that mindset of anything I do I need to destroy everyone else at, you know? Yes, and I, I definitely kind of see that, but where I sort of come from it as is that um, I, I'm, I, I left that doc not really inspired by him, but more just sort of baffled and almost sort of marveling at the fact that that's his whole existence type of thing because he is insanely competitive. I don't know if you've got to, like, the episodes yet. I forget which ones these happened in. But there's one where it's, like, literally a 10-minute, like, segment of, you know, this guy said something to him that he viewed as disrespectful. So he made it a mission to get, like, 60 points on the next game. At, At one point, this to me was the most fascinating one. There was this player for the Washington Bullets named LeBradford Smith who just had the game of his life against Jordan and scored 38 points. And after the game, he told Jordan, nice game, Mike. So Michael Jordan was furious, went to the locker room and said, I'm going to get what this guy had the next game against him in the first half. And he did. And, he, and you know what the kicker is? LeBradford Smith, Smith never talked to Michael Jordan. He made that conversation up. Wait, like Michael Jordan just made that conversation up in his mind? Yes. <laughs> um, to some role player who would never play that good in the game again. That's what he needed to do to keep himself 
sort of motivated after winning everything. And that to me is just like, how can somebody exist like that? Just to marvel at that is like part of what kept me fascinated in the documentary. Cause it's like, every time you think there's no way he can be like that competitive, he just one ups himself and you're like, Jesus Christ, how do you live like this? Yeah. Dude, that's bananas. Mm-hmm. What a, what a, what a dude. Yeah. Human being to be alive. <laughs> I, I just, again, I can't quite wrap my head around him, which I think is what makes me grumpy about this documentary. And it frustrates me how closely. So we talked about this as soon as I started watching Lance. Mm-hmm. I think the people who watch Lance, and there will be less of them, the people who watch Lance will be different from the kind of people who are drawn to The Last Dance. But will also, like, I think, view it in the lens of The Last Dance. Like, most of Lance's audience has watched at least part of The Last Dance. And it's such a different and fascinating beast. (laughs) Because from the get-go... It is weird in just a totally different way. Because, you know, in The Last Dance, you're shown all of these hyper-competitive qualities, and you're supposed to think, this is good, right? This propels this guy forward. I think that's a pretty clear message, is like, if you want to win, if you want to succeed, this is what you have to do. Like, this is the price of that. But it still paints success in a light where it's something to be coveted, right? And you don't want to be Rodman because Rodman's like a rudderless jerk around. Uh, and, like, you don't want to be Scottie Pippen because Scottie Pippen's like a feckless, like, confused little man. And you don't want to be – like, you want to be Jordan. And it hurts, but this is how you get to the top. And from the get-go in Lance, and just watch the first two minutes. Yes, there's, it there's, is the, there's nothing we can do to, like, prepare you for the first two minutes of Lance. No. You have to watch it for yourself, because anything we say about it could spoil just how perfect it is. I think the only thing I'll say is it is the perfect intro. They could not have come up with something better to start that dog. Because it is what everyone is thinking when they click the icon to say, I'm going to watch a documentary about Lance Armstrong. And more, moreover, when they see himself, Lance Armstrong himself, His talking old to you. janky self. Because he old, bro. Like, he looks like a store brand Matthew McConaughey. Yeah. Like... Like, his catchphrase is, okay, okay, okay. Like, yeah, for sure. Those are the vibes I get. Um, what other thoughts do I have about Lance Armstrong? His daughter has a chronic case of I'm a girl who looks like my dad syndrome, which is, as we all know, a curse, especially when your dad is the famous one bald man. Um, there are... And I'm just going to warn you guys, and I've also been waiting to say this 
phrase on the podcast and, and not have Justin cut it. So I can be factually accurate when I tell you that there are scrotal scans involved. Um, and oh my God, are they an experience? Um, no, I mean, I just got to say it's a documentary with a lot of balls. Right. But but really I can only speak for the first half. So I guess it has half of the balls that it might have. Uh there will be many a joke that you will make. I fully recommend watching this with a friend who is as twisted and broken as you are. Um because Justin and I watched the first episode together, and oh god, we're bad people. Yeah. No, I think like that's what's so great about this documentary. It is both like a much better journalistic endeavor than the Last Dance was. Like yes. it is not because like, and part of it feels poetic because so much of Lance Armstrong's life has been a circle that like to finally have somebody like hold the light up to him and watch him scatter like a cockroach is nice. They're not asking friendly questions. No. The dark moments are clearly not opening up the curtain. It's like, like Lance is a terrible guy. And they say from the beginning, they have journalists come in and who have worked with Lance for years and be like, nothing he tells you is going to be true. Like, only the things that have been irrefutably proven by facts are the kind of things that Lance Armstrong will fess up to at this point. And yes, and like you'll see that in the second episode. There's a couple questions they ask that I can't believe he gave a straight answer to that, basically. Um, what were they? One was like, what's the worst you've ever treated someone? And he mentioned the... I forget what role she had, but she was the person who initially spoke with somebody who worked at one of those, like, labs that Armstrong was getting his stuff from and was sort of the first to make a tie from that to Armstrong. And he was very, very upset about that, even though she was very right. And so he denied everything. And then publicly called her a whore in an interview. Well, that's not nice. It's not just nice at all. Not founded. No. It's just not polite. No, it's it's a very mean thing to do. I think we can all agree. <laughs> this Lance Armstrong guy's a real piece of work. <laughs> Does Greg LeMond come up? Yes, he is in the second episode. Not as much as I would have liked, but it does show that, like, there, there was a quote Greg LeMond said back then that Lance just hated that I think sort of sums the whole story up well. Like, I forget what year it was, but LeMond said that if he's clean, it's the greatest story in sports history. Yeah. If he's not, he's the greatest fraud in sports history. It's a great, great quote. Because I think, so I love Greg LeMond as a human, as a story, like, I think he seems like a... As a Phineas like a pretty... and Ferb guest star. Absolutely. 
But, like, I think part of the reason I latch on to that quote is because at, at work, I have a lot of moments where it's, like, the ramifications of, like, if this is true are huge, and the ramifications of if this is false are huge. But at this point in time, we have no way to tell. And so I think feeling that agony where Greg Lamond knows, but he can't prove it. And it is just wild. So I think one of the things that has become clear to me, because I've done some, I had more time before this second documentary, part of the documentary came out. And I got interested in cycling. And my hope is to read that book that they talk about in the first episode. Eventually, I would like to read that book. But one of the things that's become clear to me, and maybe they talk about this in the second episode, is Lance Armstrong's scandal only could have happened in cycling. There is, like, no other sport in the world where this could have occurred. Because, what's that? Oh. Um, I can definitely think of a lot of sports where a all-time great having a cheating scandal would rock the world, like, 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 imagine if Michael Phelps got caught or something, or Usain Bolt, you know? I'm convinced he doped, but... <laughs> well, no, absolutely. Well, well, he's done one type of dope, we know. Um, Why was that a scandal? Because like, it was 2008. <laughs> what a time to be alive that was. People were heartbroken that he'd smoked weed. Honestly, I'm I'm more concerned of the fact that he was friends with Jared from Subway. Um, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. That's that's some like Epstein level connections right there. You're gonna have to cut that. That could be very libelous. I'm, we are not implying that Michael Phelps is indeed a pedophile. Um, <laughs> hey, this isn't print. Oh, good. So, actually, it's slander. There oh. is a. <laughs> All opinions of Justin and I are our own and not our employers. Neither the Lincoln Journal Star nor Hillcrest Firethorn Retirement Community would like to go on record and say Michael Phelps is a pedophile. No, we have no proof of this. No. If there's anything we learned from Lance, it's that you need proof because he got yeah. away with it for so long. I think that was the part I was talking about was not that athletes in other sports can juice. Obviously they have. It's that it's so insulated except for when your country has a breakout star. That's the only time that people care. And then when people care, they really, really care. And then they stop caring again altogether. Yes. And it happened like at a time where everyone was doing it. And it was going to look terrible if everybody came down for cycling. So no one had the incentive to bring Lance down. Because, At the time, no. Yeah. And so the scandal has to wait, basically, until a mixture of people with an axe to grind and journalists <laughs> working hard to figure it out come together. Yes. And I just remember looking at my sports almanac which i got every year for christmas as a kid because i was that type of kid who for christmas would ask for a literal big thick book filled with nothing but sports results and read it cover to cover even though there was like one new result per chapter every year i would still read that thing 
and there was the cycling chapter, and it was like Tour de France winners. And since like the 80s onward, everybody had an asterisk by their name, except for like three people, Greg LeMond, some random Italian guy, and Lance Armstrong. Right. And, and I was like, even as a kid, it was like, either that's insanely impressive or something super fishy there. Right. Like, I wanted to but believe so bad that he was the hero who showed all those steroid users you don't need anything. But at the same time, when it came out, it did not shock me one bit. No. No, I think what's so interesting about cycling is where the line got drawn. So, like, blood transfusions were a gray area, right? Mm -hmm. For a long time, at least. Like, it wasn't clear whether or not they were legal. But, like, people take intravenous fluids in there all the time. So, like, once you... I think this is true of UFC, too. Once you've got a needle in your arm, you're not always totally sure what's going in there. And I honestly think one of the, like, meta lies that Lance might be telling is that he knew everything that was going in his body. Because so much was going in his body, it would be almost impossible to know every single time, especially when you just got done with a race, especially when you're exhausted. Which, as I understand it, is when you take EPO. Yes. After you've exerted yourself. Absolutely. Like, and the, the, you guys run themselves ragged. Like, it's crazy. Yes. Like, just to, just to keep up the level of success he was having, which even for somebody who was doping was unprecedented levels of success in that sport, in that era. Like, mm -hmm. as somebody in the first part said, and this is, will stick with me a while, is that, in cycling, the difference between the front of the pack and the back of the pack is only like a 2% difference in skill. EPO right. makes you 10% better. Like, after he said that, I'm like, there is no doubt in my mind that, like, everybody was juicing about it. Like, <laughs> I, I find it almost hard to believe that there's a single mm -hmm. rider on those tours. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm with you. And... There was another quote in the second half of the film that I like to get sort of your perspective on. It's when they were like pushing up against Lance about how he lied for so many years, saying he didn't dope. He was the clean face of cycling. He was this inspirational hero. He was set out to be. And he said, everybody lied at the time. Everybody was batting a thousand in lies. I was just asked more questions about it than anybody else was. So other guys may have lied one time and I lied 10,000 times, but we both batted a thousand. And I'm like, God, it's hard to disagree with that. Like it doesn't make him look better, but then again, it's like, it doesn't make him look worse. Right. Well, I think he's using it as, as a tactic to try and look better. I just don't think it's working. You know? yeah. Like, he, I think, I want the journalists who worked on Lance to replace the absolute who worked on The Last Dance. Like, I want, 
actual journalists to ask Michael Jordan questions. Because I don't think anybody should be above reproach, and I don't think anyone should be above legitimate questioning. And I'm not saying that if you put Michael Jordan in front of real journalists, he'd look like Lance Armstrong. But I am saying that The Last Dance would have showed a very different dude, right? Yes, and, well, which sort of brings me to my perspective on The Last Dance, which I I do agree with you there, that it's not what Lance is. It's not this (laughs) objective, here are the facts, here's the feet to the fire constantly. But there's not zero of that in there. What this is basically is... And I, I have big problems with how ESPN advertised it. They advertised it as, this is the untold story of never reversing footage, 10 parts, Chicago Bulls dynasty. And when in reality, it was mostly just either sort of a retelling of the story, but it was like the first time that Michael Jordan has ever sort of sat down and gave you his story of the years he spent on Chicago Bulls. And just as a basketball fan who knows Jordan has been notorious for not really sharing much about himself, like him sitting down and telling you his story is like something that I just couldn't imagine not being interested in. I think that's how it should have been advertised instead of this is untold, never before seen stuff, which there really wasn't that much never before seen footage in there. I liked what I saw of it, but it wasn't, that wasn't the whole documentary at all. And Jordan did lie in the documentary. Like, people will come out and say that. But I think it's fascinating sort of what he lied about in seeing that. And that I just think it it's frustrating that he was allowed to lie. Mm-hmm. Like, like, surely the guys making the doc knew he was lying. Yes. So why are you letting him get away with it? Good point. Like, I mean, because he's Michael Jordan is not a sufficient answer. And yet I feel like that's the only answer that's there. I guess since he could have pulled the plug at any time on the whole project, you know? Right. What I sort of come back to with the lying, making it more interesting thing is in the Dream Team episode, when they ask him, were you the person who made Isaac, who made sure Isaiah Thomas was not on that team. And he was like, no, no, that wasn't me. And then Isaiah, they interview him, and he just goes off for two minutes about how he fit all of the criteria but was not selected. And at that point, it's so obvious that Jordan lied. Phil holds that grudge all those years later. And he won't admit that he kept Isaiah Thomas off the dream team. And that to me is just fascinating that he just cannot let that go. And I think the man's a sociopath. Yes. He's not a normal human, but the documentary spends 10 episodes praising him for being a madman. I don't know how to feel about that. There is a lot of praise, but I think there's also a lot of sort of draw your own conclusion stuff. You can either buy, in, buy into whatever that this is the only way the greatness where you can just be like, look back and be like, this man is an absolute psycho. This, like, how does he live like this? And I think that's part of it too. And just, yeah, I think episode six is a great dive into that. (laughs) All right. 
Well, at some point, maybe I'll finish it and we'll revisit it. Mm-hmm. And maybe if there's things from Lance we want to follow up on once I get the time. Again, I'm sorry, folks. I worked 50 hours last week. So, desperately looking for time to finish these things up, but what are you going to do? Uh, so, what's next? Uh, baseball, and then you'll you'll get your F1 corner after that. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, the NBA officially announced its plan to return July 31st, and it is the first major big four. United States of American sport to do so, announce its plan back. Back in March, things seemed very different. The MLB had reportedly agreed to a deal with its players for a 50-50 revenue split with prorated salaries and that spring training too would start June 10th. Sometime in May, the owners went back on that deal and requested that the players take even further pay cuts with the top guys getting as much as 70% of their salary cut in the year. The players were not having that. They were like, we had this deal in place. Why are you going back? And ever since then, the two sides could not have been more far apart in these labor negotiations. For example, the most recent proposal from the Players Association calls for a 114-game season. The most recent proposal from the owners calls for a 50-game season. Jesus. Yes. We are so insanely far apart on this that baseball now seems further away than it did during the heat of the pandemic. (laughs) Yeah, that sucks. Sucks a lot, bro. Yes. So, what are the odds we have baseball at all this year? I'm feeling like really really low like less than five percent because i i just don't see how these two sides will give any ground on each other like i i i blame the owners for this because they're the ones who went back on the original deal and yep uh, in my opinion you're, you're not allowed to sort of complain about their deal not being good enough when you literally recanted on an agreement and their reasoning for this, according to Nolan Arenado, an uh, infielder for the Colorado Rockies, is that what he's heard is that they originally agreed to it because they didn't know if fans were going to be allowed or not. And I, I don't buy that for a second. Because how, watching everything that's gone on, can you still reasonably think that we would have started with fans? Mm-hmm. So that just, it just angers me that they're getting in the way of baseball coming back because there are owners who would lose more money having the season, paying players their fair salary for these games. They would lose more money doing that for a great number of games than they would if there was no season at all. So I I think there are actively owners in baseball who don't want the season to happen, which just cannot happen in any sport. I got you. And, like, look at, look at the NBA and all of these players who, when asked about the season's return, said Adam Silver would not bring us back if he didn't know it was safe. And that type of relationship between commissioner and player 
that's not in any other sport. It's not in baseball at all. Rob Manfred has been dead silent throughout this whole thing. He is not trying to bring the sides together at all. And that, to me, is just so infuriating. You run the sport. He could do more than anybody else to make sure that we have some season, that both sides get some of what they want, and he's just not doing it. He's just not doing anything. This, this baseball negotiation is just insane, and the effect's going to be catastrophic on the whole sport because if they can't make their money, even some money, then that's not just major leaguers. The minor leaguers who don't even make that much will, will get pay cuts, and soon full minor leagues will have to fold. Basically all but confirmed that with no season, we were just going to have AAA, AA, single A, and all the other rookie leagues affiliated with the MLB will be, will be shelved. So independent baseball, this could be a godsend for that because like the Salt Dogs would have a chance at players with legit shot at the MLB. But then again, the guys who depend on that Salt Dogs for income, they're going to be out of a job. And like, I guess this could be good for college baseball as stars would stay longer, but who knows? Who knows? So that's where things are. Other than life is incredibly depressing, do we have anything to realistically add to that? No, I just needed to rant about how nobody's doing anything. And, like, this could have been baseball's chance to get back in the spotlight because it has felt like baseball has never mattered less in my lifetime than it has now. Basically, I can think of, like, two moments from the past decade that stick out as this story in baseball was more important than any other story in sports at that time. And that's absolutely pathetic for what used to be this household American institution is that aside from the Cubs winning the World Series, which was this long, long running gag and just American lexicon was the Cubs are bad. They have not won a World Series. Like that transcended sports that was referenced in countless movies. And number two was there was a couple of weeks where the Astros cheating scandal was the biggest deal in sports. And that was with other sports going on. Besides that, but nothing, I, nothing else important was going on in other sports. True. It, it was regular seasons. We took them ways too much for granted at the time. Oh, what yeah. I wouldn't give for any regular season to be back right now, but you know, yeah. But can you think of another time that like baseball felt like the most important sport? I can think of times it meant it felt more important than anything else to me. I really can't think of times where it transcended. I think 2013 was a big year for the Red Sox. Obviously, won a World Series off the back of the Boston bombing. And I think that transcended things a little bit. I mean, in our lifetime, that 04 ALCS was huge. Sad to bring that up. Well, I'm just talking about times that were important. Yes. Um, the A-Rod doping scandal was big. A-Rod Jeter beef 
I think transcends, but like Which, not in any single moment. That a radiator like, beef is still going on, which will be a future podcast topic because, like, I love the a rod jeter beef. I love watching, like, the snake eat its own tail. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh my god! And just oh, we'll save it for future time. But like, oh, do you have a side? I don't know. I really don't. I mean, I just think they're both. So it's really easy for me. They are, but like, oh, these are my. Childhood baseball heroes, like, and they both hate each other now. Man, at least all David Ortiz does is occasionally get shot in the Dominican and make commercials with John Krasinski. I packed it and then unpacked it. Your Boston accent is one of your worst accents. Thank and you. that's remarkable because all of them are terrible. Jolly good. Jesus, Hector Christ. <laughs> uh, speaking of accents and places around the world, seamless transition to... Oi! What? Okay, we're going to talk about F1 now. F1 is a sport that is actually officially coming back. Wow. F1 will be back on the 3rd of July. For final practice at the first race of the year in not Australia, where it was supposed to be, but Austria. We are going to be at the Red Bull Ring in Austria for the first two weeks of the season. From 3 July to 12 July, we will be racing in Austria. So basically, the schedule so far the first two rounds back to back in Austria, then to Hungary then to Great Britain for, for a back-to-back, then to Spain, then to Belgium, then to Italy. And there are, I think, no... That's, like, going to take us from July, the first week of July to the first week of September, so I don't think there's a single break in those eight weeks. There's going to be a Grand Prix somewhere every weekend. Now, there's a bunch of F1 regulation stuff out there right now. And it's going to be slightly difficult and slightly nebulous to talk about. And it will be easier to address more fully when the regulations go into effect next year. But basically, F1 is going to have a cost cap. Which, think salary cap, but for your car. There's going to be a certain set level of money that every team can spend on their vehicle. There are a few things that don't follow, fall under the cost cap. First, marketing will not fall under the cost cap. So teams are going to be able to keep their whole marketing staffs. The top three employees will be like effectively luxury playered out of the cops cap so that those people can continue to be compensated what they're worth on the free market. But, oh, and drivers will not apply 
so drivers can be compensated what they would be compensated on the free market. But as far as the nuts and bolts of research and development, which is what this series of changes is really targeting, everyone's going to spend or be allowed to spend a level amount of money with pretty severe punishments. So it's going to be hard for teams to cheat. What are the punishments? So there's like three tiers of infraction and three tiers of punishment that don't necessarily have to correspond, but clearly like it's kind of, it's the sentencing guidelines sort of. So there's like a warning and a minor infraction. And then there's like a, like, like if you commit basically like an accident, like if you overspend by a reasonable amount of money at the end of the year, or you like accidentally forget to turn in your paperwork, or you accidentally forget to round and, and, and say things are like, like if there's a math error in your accounting department, you get like a minor infraction, which is like a slap on the wrist and like could compound into problems for you. Then there's like a second tier it's like medium infraction that comes with like medium punishment, which is a fine and like a pretty substantial fine that applies to your next year's budget that you won't get to spend. It just lowers your cost cap further. Oh. Um, so it's a pretty good deterrent from mid-level infractions. And then if you are off by like tons and tons of money at the end of the year, you'll get a major infraction which can like result in you being disqualified from winning the championship, you being disqualified from competing in races, you being moved to the back of the grid, no matter how you qualify. And that's totally subjective. Once we get to grid penalties, the FIA just gets to be like, Hmm, you shall wear a funny hat and walk backwards <laughs> to your car. And like, that's what you got to do. Like, cause the FIA are gods. Um, so in addition to this, there are, are arrow changes coming. They have been, mm, I want to say the arrow changes got moved back again to 2022. I could be wrong, but the hope is that the changes to the arrow package will eliminate the dirty air problem, which we've talked about on the podcast before, but basically it makes it harder to drive closely behind other vehicles, which then makes it harder to overtake them. And then the other thing, there's the cost cap, and then the other thing is there's going to be an aero development cap. Basically, currently, there's a set amount of time that a team is allowed to be inside a wind tunnel working on aerodynamic parts. What's going to happen is the teams that are winning are going to get, like, 90% of the current aero time in the wind tunnel. And the teams who are losing at the end of the year, the following year we'll get like 115% of the base level time. And then that only gets more drastic from there to the point where we get to like 80% and 130% in like two or three years, it scales up. Whoa. So that, we talked about the races, we talked about the regulation changes, and then there's Williams. Williams. Oi. Or poor Williams, 
who have sucked for years, but won an e-racing event, are now finally considering selling the company either a minority stake or the entire thing. And it's sad. And you should watch the documentary Williams on Netflix because you will understand just how much it means to this family to own basically their father's greatest work. And Claire Williams is a very sweet, sweet lady who clearly is just not a good Formula One principal. And it's, it's really, really sad because some of it is their own damn fault and some of it is not. But don't these rules give them the chance to be competitive for the first time in a long time? The only correct answer to that is maybe. You feel? Mm-hmm. It's possible. Um, but they just lost their title sponsor, Rocket, and also one of their other major sponsors after the year 2020. So there's kind of three ways this could go. Williams could, like, really figure themselves out, get a couple sponsors, get the money figured out to keep going for next year, and, like, make shit work. They could sell. And then somebody could either keep the name or change the name and implement better policies that will compound with the better, like, regulations for them as that goes on so that they can get closer and closer to the front of the grid and then additionally ugh, they could fold like they could just oh no it's like not out of the question that they could just cease to exist oh I like really... them being bad I know. Wait, like, this is just not a thing in other sports. Like, in American sports, teams feel etched in stone. And when they leave, like, people cry about them forever. Supersonics. Yes, there are still Sonics fans out there. They left in 07, 08. Yep. But, like, in Formula One, there was a team who raced for one season and then turned into Mercedes. Oh, wow. Yep. Braun GP. And you know what they did? What? They won a title. Solid. Yep. Honda became Braun, became Mercedes. But in that one year, they were Braun. They won the title. It was a weird year, and I honestly think they're going to make, like, a Hollywood movie about it someday because it, like, ties into the Great Recession. Oh. Yeah. Honda had to get rid of their team because they were losing all their money. And so the guy who, like, ran Honda's team for them just bought it for a dollar. One dollar. Yeah, he bought Braun from Honda for one dollar. Yep. I, if, if, if that was happening now, I would throw in $2. I feel like so, I'd throw in 3 But the thing was, like, it was 2008. Nobody had $3. Not a soul. No. 
the Bron most Bron amount of money. man in the world, and he spent it all on on Braun GP for one dollar. <laughs> he could have had a McChicken, but instead, Bill Gates was worth a mere thirty nine cents. <laughs> An expired Popeyes coupon. But this was before the chicken sandwich, so it was useless. No. The $5 bona fide big box was the best deal in fast food at the time. Until the chicken sandwich. I would hope so. It, it's, it's like the McRib. It comes in and out. Well, I know where I'm going to lunch. The McRib? Or Popeyes? No, the McRib's gone. This year just keeps getting worse! Wait, is the McRib still there? I have no idea. I okay. Let's go to isthemcribback.com. Cuz I feel like we had sandwiches in school that were the McRib. Sort of, but they didn't have that sauce. I feel like the McRib sauce is just like barbecue sauce. Okay. I'm, I'm looking at a McRib right now. Its most recent sighting was in Logan Square, Illinois. <laughs> there is a website called McRibLocator.com. So the McRib is not back? No. But it was seen in Illinois. You're a strange, strange man, you know that? Yes. You know what's underrated? Shamrock Shake. I get hype every time Sam- Shamrock Shakes come back. They're good, but at least it makes sense that they're seasonal. Like, why does yeah, the like, mic- why do the microbe have to come and go? Why does the big box have to come and go? Where, where, I just where don't we think we could be trusted with the McRib right now. Like, you look at what's going on in the world. You throw the McRib into that. Some awful stuffs about to go down. I just don't think America can be trusted with a mixture of pork and beef shaped oddly into something that is supposed to look like ribs but does not at all look like ribs. And then put on a bun with onions and pickles and barbecue sauce. We're just not ready. We're just not emotionally prepared. We're much more in a point in American history of like the artisan Asiago guacamole sadness burger from McDonald's. Remember That's when they tried to get burger? Fancy? They had like an Asiago burger and a guacamole burger at McDonald's. Whoa! And they were like eight dollars a piece, and it was insane. If you're spending that type of money, get the bacon smokehouse. It is phenomenal. How much was it? Not, don't remember, but it's somewhere near that price range. It like legit tastes like a sit-down restaurant burger. I am not even kidding. Have you ever had the breakfast baconator from Wendy's? I have not. Let me walk you through this. Show. Okay. <laughs> Bottom hamburger bun. Okay. Yes. The circle boy. I believe two sausage patties. A are fried they, egg. Are they good sausage patties, or are they like yeah. the watery kind? A good sausage patties, like a legitimately fried egg, like not in a strange like circle mold, but like it's clear they actually fried an egg. It wasn't even powdered. Two strips of bacon, American cheese, Is and then melted? like a yeah, 
and then like a Swiss cheese sauce, Ooh. and then another bun. Top bun, I see. I felt, yeah, I felt my arteries clogging as I was eating this thing. But like, and my day was terrible. Like, I just had a horrible time after eating that because like your body just does not want you to continue. It is actively trying to get you to have a heart attack or throw a stroke. But, like, it's just this odd sense of bliss. Like, I've never done heroin. <laughs> but I imagine that the breakfast Baconator is the closest I have ever come to, uh, to heroin. Yeah. I'm pretty sure... Some of the ingredients in the breakfast baconator would get you banned from international cycling. Oh, for sure. International travel, even. <laughs> like, if you showed up to TSA with a, with a breakfast baconator, they'd be like, whoa, sir, why are you trying to take that thing? You can't export that much freedom overseas, sir. I think we just wrote a, a Wendy's commercial. No, because because they like won't give you like a burger with the biggie bag because the hamburger meat is so expensive right now. So like that that has answered the age old question. Where's where's the beef? Oh wow, wow. What? It's true. Not a Wendy. Uh you know what doesn't make sense? A lot of things, but I'm curious to see what you would say. Arby's. I see a need for Arby's. Uh, so I see a need for Arby's too, but like, I just don't understand how someone came up with it. <laughs> like, like Arby some guy himself. was really like, I'd like to have a fast food restaurant. Okay, Mr. Um... RB, what uh, what would uh, what 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 are you gonna serve? Like, how did the guy from the first Arby's get a bank loan? Is what I'm asking. <laughs> like, what do you plan to serve? Burgers. Uh, well, we have the meats. Like, like, okay. What, what do you mean? Well, like roast beef sandwiches will be the thing that we are famous for. Oh, like complicated, interesting roast beef that No, no. I'm gonna take a hamburger bun. I'm going to take some sad, whipped, shredded roast beef. I'm going to throw that shit. A cold cut. Yeah. I'm going to just, like, heat up a cold cut, put it on a sandwich, and serve it with barbecue sauce I call Arby's sauce and horseradish sauce I call horsey's sauce. Horsey's sauce. And I'm going to just, like, make a killing. And then they're like, okay, sir, will you serve other things? And he's like, Oh, yeah. I have, like, barely gotten started here. We're going to have gyros. Inexplicably, some of them will have turkey. We're going to have Rubens. Inexplicably, some of them will have turkey. We're going to have, like, just, like, the heart attack sandwich where it's, like, melted nacho cheese and brisket and, like, a whole blooming onion. <laughs> Okay, now I have another question. Who came up with the Bloomin' Onion? Like, apparently, that's not an actual thing in Australia. So someone no. out there came up with it. 
someone sitting in an outback one day like totally slipped as they were cutting an onion and it like it was like the meatball from the meatball song where it like rolls through the breading and then rolls through the egg wash and then rolls back through the breading and then falls into the fryer and then comes out they're like you know what that looks like an onion flour. You know what we're gonna do? We're gonna cut out the center, mix up basically mayo and sriracha, put a vat of that in the middle, and give it to white people. <laughs> and don't get me wrong, I'm now hungry for a bloomin' onion. <laughs> like they're great. How I think the bloomin' onion story went down. I think somebody was just high out of their mind staring yeah. at an onion and then all of a sudden like so we, you got jerry in the work who's just tripping and then you have like the actual chef who's at an outback so they hate their life and they they just slice up this onion and then they see jerry and they're angry so they leave the building but then jerry's like no wait look at what you've created with the onion slices it's a flower and he's like shut the hell up jerry and he storms out the building quits his job but then he runs into the big boss of the corporation as he's walking out and he's like why'd you quit and he's like jerry just said my onion looked like a flower i hate it here and the boss is like that's genius and then jerry became the ceo the boss just quits yes on the spot because he did not come up with the booming onion he just wills everything to jerry and then has a heart attack yes because like he was the CEO of Outback it was going to happen sooner or later (laughs) I've had their butter I would know God what is with like strange Aussie butter (laughs) strange Aussie butter (laughs) you know what like Australia seems like the most made up place yes they have animals not found in other parts of the world or had, right. I should say. Um, but oh, moving on, they have they have putters that you jam into your belly button. Yep. Well, mm-hmm. for what? They have a thing called a didgeridoo that is a national treasure. They have, they fought a war against large birds. <laughs> And they lost. <laughs> but they were also instrumental in the D-Day invasion and much of World War One. And they lost to emus. <laughs> like what? They built an opera house. And instead of just making it look like a normal thing, they decided. No, this needs to look like an alien spacecraft landed here for the purposes of opera. <laughs> like, it looks like something out of an REO Speedwagon album cover. <laughs> Which is not a compliment. And that's their national treasure. It's that yeah. and a big rock. And Daniel Ricardo, the most made-up man in the world. <laughs> Like, Daniel Ricardo looks like the kind of guy who you would expect to see in a cartoon called, like, Action Dangerman. Action Dangerman. Starring Burt Danger. Right. 
God. <laughs> Australians. I'm still hung up on Arby's. <laughs> you guys gonna have fries? Yeah, but like not normal ones. <laughs> okay. What else are you going to serve? Strange Giardelli-infused chocolate shakes everyone will be obsessed with in the year 2014. <laughs> like, what? What's your logo, man? I don't know. Maybe an oven bit. Maybe a cowboy hat. We'll, we'll, we'll decide as we go. They're jacking over their fries. Not only are they corkscrew shaped, they're like bright orange and they're not sweet potato fries. What makes them look like that? The fries are darker than the ketchup. Which, like, listen, man, I'm not here trying to tell the fries how to be. They just gotta live their best lives. But, like, dude. It's weird. It's not normal. That's for sure. And like, Arby's specialty sandwiches are some of the weirdest things anywhere. Yeah! Again, with the brisket and a whole blooming onion and like, the single ghost pepper and like, Peruvian like, magic powder that'll make you trip balls. Like, (laughs) Jerry! Well, do we actually have any more sports to talk about today? Sports? Um, I don't think so. Sports ball. Go sports ball. Sport, 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 sport.